We go to Matthew chapter 11. Wow. We just spent a moment meditating on Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. English hymn writer William Cooper has name looks like it's Cowper, but it's actually pronounced Cooper, led an emotionally troubled life. He struggled with severe depression throughout his life, most likely stemming from the untimely death of his mother when he was six years old, something that he grieved for the rest of his life over. He struggled with severe bouts of depression. Eventually, he moved to the town of Olney in England, Town of Olney is where John Newton, the hymn writer of Amazing Grace, pastored. Amazing Grace is a side note, celebrating its 250th anniversary this month. But Newton was the pastor there. He and Cooper came to be friends, and Newton would be his pastor. Throughout the, the ups and downs of Cooper's life, he and Newton walked side by side, writing hymns together. They have a, a book of hymns that they wrote together. He was a, a, a classic poet and hymn writer, Cooper was. One occasion, he was in such a severe bout of depression, he attempted to take his own life. This wasn't the first time he had done so. Several times in his life, he had been that low. And on this occasion, in an attempt to drown himself that was unsuccessful, somewhere right around that event, he wrote the words of his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And above the hymn, at the top of the page, he wrote John 13, 7, which reads, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And he penned these lyrics under that verse. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord in feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and he will make it plain in the midst of the valleys in the midst of the difficulties of life cooper trusted his lord he trusted that although he didn't understand he knew that god worked in mysterious ways that that he was sovereign that he reigned over all things 
He was carrying out his plan, and he wrote this hymn celebrating the providence of God. That although he didn't understand everything, he trusted him. Our text today, we, we come to the life of John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, the Messiah. As we come to the life of John in this instance, we come to a time where, where John questions the very identity of Jesus. John, the forebearer of Christ, the one who prepared the way for Christ, is sitting in a moment of question, a moment where doubts assailed him, in a moment where the situation of his life did not necessarily match his expectations. He no doubt saw God moving, but he saw God moving in a way that, that was quite mysterious to him and quite confounding to him, baffling to him. And so John comes to Jesus with a very serious question this morning. Let's read God's Word from Matthew 11, 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the Violent, take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. We start chapter 11, verse 1 is somewhat of a, 
a time stamp in the narrative that Matthew is giving us in his gospel, and we come to this verse and we see that what's going on is the end of the missions discourse, as, as it's so-called, of chapter 10, where, where Jesus is teaching. He's sending out the 12, and he's teaching about the mission that we're to be on, about pro, um, uh, promoting and advancing the gospel. And so we come to the end of the missions discourse, and we see that the 12 have been sent out. He's finished instructing his disciples. They sent out, and now he goes on from there to preach and to teach in their cities, From this point on, we're going to see a different response to Jesus. We're going to see a varying amount or varying types of responses to him. Even in chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, we see John questioning Jesus, right? We see him asking this genuine, heartfelt question of Jesus' identity. In verse 16 and 19, uh, we see Jesus confronting this disregard and refusal to be satisfied that the people around him have. Later in verse 20 to 24, we're going to read of a lack of repentance, that people just will not repent when they hear the gospel, they hear the call to repent and trust in him. In verse 25 to 30, Jesus is going to give this profound and beautiful invitation to come to him. And we'll go into chapter 12 and we will see continual opposition increase and increase and increase towards our Lord until verse, or chapter 13, he will start speaking in parables. We'll see as we get into chapter 13, from that point on, he speaks very clearly, privately to his disciples, but he speaks in parables to those surrounding. In verse 2, we, we read that John heard in prison. He, he's in prison because what Matthew will tell us later in, in 14 verses 3 to 5, he talks about John and he tells us why he was in prison. He says, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And so John sits imprisoned. And as he sits in prison, he faces a dilemma. He faces a, a difficulty. He faces a moment where like Cooper, he, he's thinking, I, I know that God moves. I know the truths of who God is. I know what I've read in the, the Old Testament scriptures. I know what the prophets have said. And I know what I was called to do. And I, I think I've faithfully done that. But as I'm looking, I've prepared the way for this Messiah. But the way that I expected the Messiah's ministry to look is a lot different than what Jesus is doing. And so in 11 verse 2, what does it say? It says, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sends words to, by his disciples to him. Now, when I, when I read this, my, my question initially is this. What was it about the deeds of Christ that caused John the Baptist in prison to then say, I need you to go ask Jesus if he is the one? I, I don't find it convincing. Some, some interpreters and theologians historically said, well, John, John was just doing this for the sake of his disciples. He was doing this for their own benefit and saying, hey, why don't you go ask him so that he can tell you and, and your faith will be strengthened. I don't, I don't find that convincing. And, and you understand in most of your translations, you'll see that translators don't find that convincing either because it says that John sent word by his disciples. We understand that he's sending word by his disciples. He's not sending word on behalf of his disciples or for the sake of his disciples. He's sending word by his disciples. 
And so he, there's no need, I don't, I don't think, to pretend that John has no weakness, that John is not a man, that John can't have a question, that John can't have doubts. There's no need to put that upon him. The theologian and pastor James Montgomery Boyce said this, he said, the greatest characters of the Bible all had weak moments. There's no reason to think that John was any less subject to human weaknesses than figures such as Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, and others. Throughout Scripture, we see men of God have moments of weakness. And I believe here in this moment, we see a time in John's life where he's in the valley and he asks a very sincere question. He has a doubt that he brings to the Lord. In, in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, you might remember John speaks of coming judgment that the Messiah would bring. He, he tells that the Messiah would come and, and he would bring his winnowing fork and he would bring about judgment. And so now John is facing this situation where he's prepared the way for the Messiah, saying the Messiah is coming and he is coming to judge. But yet he looks and he looks upon the deeds of Christ, the works of Christ, and what does he see Christ doing? He sees him proclaiming good news. He sees him healing the sick. He sees him teaching about the law. He sees him showing acts of grace and mercy towards those around him. He does not see Jesus speaking judgment, pronouncing judgment, acting judgment, coming with that winnowing fork. He does not see him reaping as he thought he would reap. John is looking for justice. And Jesus was preaching grace. And so John sits back and says, wait a minute. What's going on? What's going on? As we walk through the passage, I want to just give you four, four gleanings or four takeaways, whatever way you want to use it, describe it, four gleanings this morning. And the first one we come to right now is the first is that we see is that doubt is not the unforgivable sin. Doubt is not this unforgivable sin that we need to be ashamed of, that we should never have, that should never enter the life of a believer, that a believer should never have questions. We see here in John's life perhaps a, a pretty serious moment of doubt. I don't think we see here in a moment that, that John has lost his faith. I don't see that at all. I, I don't see John turning his back on the Lord. I simply see that, that John has a very important question. And that question is, are you the one who is to come or do we look for another? What, what I thought it was going to look like is different, Lord. Are you the one? Charles Spurgeon said that dark thoughts may come to the bravest when put in a narrow cell in reference to John. That John sitting in a prison cell thinking, I prepared the way and you're supposed to come in judgment, yet here I am sitting in a jail cell. You haven't come. You haven't even saved me. You haven't even brought me out of this. I don't understand. Are you the one? Now, honestly, this seems baffling. Remember 3.11, what I referred to? This is what John said. He says, I, he's talking. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Or, or even in light of John one twenty nine, 
You remember what John says in John 1, 29? He, he sees Jesus walking down the road, and what does he do? He looks to Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There, there was no doubt in those statements. John wasn't saying, you know, that, that guy has potential. I mean, look at him. Real potential to be the Lamb of God right there. No, he says, Behold, see, truly, here he is. Open your eyes. That's him. But now he asks this question. So has John developed this spiritual amnesia? Has he all of a sudden forgotten what he was supposed to be doing? Is he all of a sudden kind of changing his mind and going, man, I messed up. Woo, messed up. I shouldn't have jumped in my mother's womb for that guy, right? No, that's not where he is. I think where John is, is John's in a, simil a situation similar to where we find ourselves at times, where something that we know to be true is maybe overshadowed for a moment by our situation in life. Something that we know, we begin to question because of where we find ourselves and what's going on around us. And we ask that question, is that true? But I think we learn a really important thing from John here. What does he do with this question? Does he, does he go, hey, Roman soldier over there, do you think this guy's the Messiah? I mean, I said he was going to be the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. Do you think he is? The Roman soldier goes, <laughs> are you kidding? No way. That's Caesar. You've totally missed it. It's not that guy. That guy is some lunatic. He's just some little nobody from Nazareth. John doesn't do that. John, John doesn't even turn to his disciples and say, hey guys, what do you think? You think I was wrong? Do you really? I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of second guessing. John doesn't go, hey, will you, will you go down to the library and get me some of the best books of the great Greek philosophers and, and let me look at all that philosophy and examine the philosophy and try to figure out if that's right or this is right? John doesn't do that. What does John do? John goes to the source. John said, I've got a question about Jesus. I'm going to Jesus. Listen, the, the principle we learn here is that when we know, when something that we know to be true is brought to question, we go to the source with it. We go to the source to confirm its veracity. This is important because over the years I've known people who, when they come to moments of doubting. Instead of going to the source, instead of going to the Lord, instead of going to His Word, they start going everywhere else, outside. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to dig in. I don't understand this. I'm going to dig into the Word of God. I'm going to dig into theology. Instead of digging in there, they go, oh, let me, let me check out all this philosophy, or let me check out what this atheist writes, or let me check out what this religion teaches. Obviously, they're going to contradict. When something needs to be dealt with or examined, go and deal with what needs to be examined. In a very simple illustration of this, our back door does not shut very easily. If you don't push on it good, it's not going to latch and it's going to blow open in the middle of the night. And there's times where I lay down and I've, I, kind of my routine is I check the doors, I lock everything, make, the door, make sure the lights are off, and I go and lay down. And there's times where I lay down and I'm getting there and I, my eyes are closed and all of a sudden it's like, boom, 
Eyes are open. Did I lock the door? Did I push it all the way to? I, I don't nudge Steph and go, hey, did I shut the door good? Steph doesn't know. She wasn't there. I don't go, hey, have you seen me shut the door good in the past? Yeah, all right, let's go to sleep then. No. In that moment, what do I do? I go check the door. I get up, I walk out there, jostle the door, make sure it's locked, then I go to bed. Go to the source. Go examine what it is. If you have a doubt, if you have a question of the Lord, go to the Lord. If you have a doubt, if you have a question, the Word of God, examine, dig into the Word of God. Doubts and questions are not something we ignore. It's not something we should be ashamed of. We deal with them. Parents, if, if your kid has a doubt or a question, you don't reprimand them and say, I can't believe you would ever have that question. I can't believe you would doubt. No. You say, hey, let's look at that. Let's look at the Word of God. Let's see what the Word of God says. Let's see if it's, if it's true. Now, what does Jesus do? How, what is Jesus' response? Look at his response in verses 4 through 5. He, he shows us, one, that questions and doubts are not unforgivable sins. What does he do? He doesn't reprimand John. He doesn't browbeat him. He doesn't say, John, what in the world? How could you ask me that question? What are you thinking? No. John, uh, Jesus answers John's question by reminding him of the Word of God. He reminds him of the prophetic Scripture and, the, and then the works that he's displaying. He points and he says, listen, I want you to remind John of everything that you've seen. So, so Jesus, everything that he references here is from the Old Testament. In, in Isaiah 50, or 35, verse 6, the Messiah will make the lame walk. In Matthew 9, 1 through 8, Jesus heals the paralytic. In Isaiah 26, 19, the Messiah would raise the dead. In Matthew 9, 18 to 26, Jesus raises the ruler's daughter from the dead. In Isaiah 29, 18, the Messiah will cause the blind to see. In Matthew 9, 27 to 31, Jesus heals two blind men. In Isaiah 29, 18, the Messiah would cause the deaf to hear. In Matthew 9, 32 to 34, the mute man was made able to hear and speak. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Messiah would proclaim the good news. In Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went about, why? To proclaim the good news. Everything that the Old Testament prophecies has said, Jesus was doing that. And so Jesus' reply is, John, I am doing exactly what the Messiah was foretold to do. You hold on. It's not time for justice. I'm doing what the Messiah is told to do. So what does Jesus do? Jesus, one, reminds John of biblical truth, and two, how that biblical truth conforms to reality. When you have a question, when you have a doubt, what do you do? Look to biblical truth and look and examine and study how does it conform to reality. It's not something just say, oh, if you have a doubt and a question, you just find it in, in the Scripture and you're just done. No, the understanding of what makes truth truth is that truth conforms to reality. So examine the Scripture and does it conform to reality? And Jesus says, listen, all of these things, he says, he says, look at Isaiah, look at the prophets, all of these things that were foretold of the Messiah, they're conformed to the reality of me as the Messiah. I'm doing it. You're seeing it. You're, you're hearing it. It's displayed. 
Matthew 9 is fulfillment of Isaiah, the prophecies. And now Jesus uses that and references it in Matthew 11. Listen, another side note here. When you have doubts and questions, looking within is not the answer. It's not the answer. You're not led in Scripture to gain assurance by looking at your own life. You're led in Scripture to gain assurance by looking to the Word of God, the promises of God, and the work of God. That's where assurance comes. And what is the fruit of those promises? We look to God's promises and we look for the fruit of those promises. We see Jesus do this and we see it time and time again in Scripture. And it's wisdom from God's Word for us today and we have questions. Now look what Jesus says in verse 6. He speaks a beatitude, a blessing to John, right? He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Or the NIV translates it, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Essentially, he's saying that the one who looks and sees Jesus for who he is and believes him is blessed. The one who looks and says, you know what? This is Christ. This is who he is. He may not fit my picture of what I expected or what I think he should look like, but I trust him. I trust him. He's as blessed as he who is not offended by me, who does not stumble over me, but believes me for who I am. So the first gleaning, right, is that doubt is not the unforgivable sin. The second gleaning is this that we see in the same section is that God moves in mysterious ways. God moves in mysterious ways, referring all the way back to what we, where we began with William Cooper and his life and his hymn. See, John here was led to prophesy that the Messiah would bring judgment. So he expected that judgment to come right away. So John is sitting in a jail cell. Man, he is ready for the Roman Empire to be brought under the judgment of God Almighty. He's ready for that. He's saying, man, I'm chained up. I'm not enjoying life. This is a bad situation. It's not going to end well for me. The Messiah is there. Bring on the judgment, brother. That's where he's at. So when Jesus comes proclaiming grace and truth and doing these great wonders among the people, rather than leading this great upheaval of the Romans, John is baffled. Now, we know in Scripture that Jesus is coming in judgment. We know that. We know that he will indeed bring judgment, but not before he brings grace. That's the privilege we have. We look back and we see the timeline. John didn't have that privilege at the moment. John is going, wait, you're supposed to bring judgment. Where is it? We look back and, and we see that there will be a day, there is indeed a day in which the mighty fury of God's wrath, of God, the wrath of God Almighty will be unleashed upon all those who have not repented and trusted in Christ. Just listen to 1 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. There will indeed be a day of judgment. But thanks be to God, our God is, is patient, our God is kind. He's seen fit to show patience that we might come to repentance and be Saved. That's what Paul wrote about in Romans 2, 4 to 5, where he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're stirring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There will indeed be a day of judgment. We, we know that. The, the Messiah was prophesied to bring that. Jesus said he will bring that. We see that in the revelation of John where, where God gives John this revelation of what is going to happen at the end. We see that he will indeed come in judgment, that God Almighty will bring about his wrath on all those who have not repented, who have not obeyed the gospel. This is a, a clear warning of Scripture. It's one that it can't fall on deaf ears. It must not fall in de- on deaf ears because there will be a day if it falls on deaf ears now, those ears will be awakened to something that you are awfully in dread of. And so I would beg you this morning, if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you to turn your life over to Christ. Don't presume upon the patience and kindness of our God. Don't take it for granted. Don't keep saying, oh, it's no big deal. Because it is a big deal and it will be a bigger deal. Jesus' life looked different than what John expected. But it didn't mean that it wasn't right. It didn't mean it wasn't true. And you may be saying, well, it's just years and years away and, and I'm fine. This is where I am. But judgment is coming. God moves in mysterious ways. And He moves in His timing according to to his plan. We need to learn from Cooper. We need to learn from John that we would look to Jesus in his glorious splendor, worshiping him and following him, not based upon our expectations of him and his timing, but based upon who he is. He is a God who is bringing judgment in due time, but he is a God who has brought grace and mercy. Would you turn upon the Lord today, would you turn to Him, repent of your sins, and trust Him in faith today if you're an unbeliever? Please, don't continue to presume upon Him. Believers, we acknowledge today that God's ways are not our ways. That God moves in a mysterious way. We were reminded of that, Romans eleven thirty three, 33, where we began God reminds us of that in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, where he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You may be here today thinking that this is how it should go. You may be thinking this is how my life should go. You may be expecting and thinking that this is how my life will go. But guess what? None of us can control that. None of us can. None of us are promised tomorrow. We need to be right with God now. And the way that you're right with God is not by something you earn. It's not by something you say. It's not by something you merit. It's not by something you are, who you are. The way you're right with God is based on who Christ is and what Christ has done. It's looking to Christ alone for salvation repenting of your sins and trusting Him in faith. God's ways are not our ways. In verses 7 through 14, we see an interesting thing. As John has 
respond, or Jesus has responded to John. And in verse 7 to 14, we see Jesus commending John before the crowd. So not only does Jesus not reprimand John for his question, he, he does the exact opposite. He, he turns around as he's talked to John's disciples. They go on his way and he just turns right around and says, now, let me tell you about John. And he commends John in front of the crowd instead of reprimanding him. He speaks highly of John before the crowd to make sure they don't get the wrong idea of him. That they understand that he truly was an important prophet of the Lord. He reminds them who they went out to see, that they went out to see a prophet. Now, mind you, these people had never seen a prophet in their lifetime. They've heard of them, they read of them, but they never seen one. And in John, they had. John was a prophet. But what does Jesus say in verse 9? He says that John wasn't just a prophet. He was more than just a prophet. Why does he say that? Because John was both a prophet and the subject of prophecy. John was a prophet and the subject of prophecy. John held a prophetic role that was spoken of in God's plan of redemption. This verse, verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 10, is a reference to Malachi 3.1. And it, it, the prophet spoke not only of Jesus, but they spoke also of John. They, they spoke of John in, in Isaiah as well. Isaiah 43 says that John, he, they were talking about John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The prophet spoke of John. He was a prophet, but he wasn't just a prophet. For this reason, in verse 11, what does Jesus say of John? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. No, no one greater than John. Among those born of women, John is the greatest. It's the greatest. But then the second half of that verse, there's really a shocking statement. He's commended John. He said, listen, John's a prophet. He's a special prophet. He's more than a prophet. No one born of woman to this point, is greater than John? But then what does he say? Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is, this is our third gleaning, our third takeaway this morning, is this, that we don't need to take the blessing of being in God's kingdom for granted. We should never take for granted the blessing of being in God's kingdom we have here in verse 11 somewhat of a, a comparison between the importance and, and blessing of the physical birth versus the spiritual birth. So we see in the first part of 11, the physical birth. Uh, John is referred to the one, among, uh, the one among those born of women, right? Physical birth. So John is the greatest of men, according to Jesus, up until that time. All the men born, he is the greatest. Now that's a profound statement when you think back about Abraham and Moses and Jacob, all of these saints of old, David, Solomon. And Jesus says, John's even greater, right? But he's talking about a man as a man, the physical birth. What he has in the second part when he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom, that's referring to new birth, spiritual birth, regeneration. The one who has been born again. Right? How, how is it that you, are, you inherit the kingdom of God? How is it that you are a part of the kingdom of God? 
John, or uh, Jesus in, in John 3.3, 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. Do you remember what he tells him? How is it that you enter into the kingdom of heaven? He, he says in, in John 3.3, 3, he answers Nicodemus. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so regeneration precedes seeing the kingdom of God. You have to be made alive. You have to be born again. And so how is it that we're greater than John? Jesus doesn't explicitly say this is how, this is why. He doesn't just come out and explicitly say that. However, what we have to recognize is that while John was able to speak in general prophetic terms looking forward to Jesus as the Lamb of God, we have the blessed privilege of being able to speak in clear and precise terms of what it meant for Jesus to be the Lamb of God and how he carried out that role, how he did what God uh, sent him to do, what it was for him to be the Lamb of God, what that looked like. We can clearly trust and proclaim what John knew little of. John looked forward in faith towards the Messiah. We look back in faith on the Messiah. John had faith trusting forward in what the Messiah would do. We are those who experience the blessing, the truth, being a part of the kingdom of God now because we've experienced salvation, the blood of the Messiah. That we have been saved and we trust and we look back upon him. The bottom line, the point is this, that we can't miss the privileged position we have as believers. We can't miss the blessing that is. And I don't think today or even in the days ahead until we stand in glory, we're going to fully grasp what that means. I really don't. Maybe we could talk about it and we could discuss what all that means this morning. But we're not fully going to be able to wrap our minds around it and grasp it until we stand before God Almighty. And we see the depth of His grace. And we stand before Him. But what we know now, what we can't forget, is that although we were guilty of sin and rebellion, we have been declared righteous in Christ. That although we were deserving of death, we have been given life. Although we were rebels and strangers, We've been adopted as children of God. Although dead in our transgressions and sin, we have been made alive in Christ. Although deserving, absolutely deserving of punishment, the legal requirement of the document of debt that we held, we have instead been given mercy. Although once an object of wrath, we're recipients of grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Don't fail to remember the blessing of your salvation, child of God. The last thing we see in verses 16 to 19 is a rebuke from the Lord. Jesus compares the people in these verses to pe children who are spoiled, 
They're demanding their way, getting their way. Hey, we, we, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, you didn't mourn. We want you to do what we want you to do. We want you to be what we want you to be. We want you to say the things we expect you to say. We want you to act like we say you should act. We want our way. Verse 18 is really the application of this. He makes that statement and he says, For John came and, and John didn't eat or drink. And everybody said, He's got a demon. He's not eating or drinking. What's wrong with that guy? Well, then Jesus comes and he's eating and drinking and he does that wrong. Look at him. What's wrong with him? He's a gluttony drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. People refused. Refused to see the truth before them. They insisted on their way. They insisted that John and Jesus meet their demands of what spoken of the prophesied Elijah and the Messiah should look like. This leads us to our final gleaning this morning. Final takeaway is that you need to beware of an attitude that refuses to see the truth when it's right in front of you. Beware of an attitude that refuses to see the truth when it's right in front of you. Some of you are sitting here today and you've heard the gospel time and time and time again. You've read scripture, you've gone through lessons, you've done studies, people have shared it with you personally, you've heard it from the pulpit, you've heard it in small groups. Time and time again, you refuse to turn your life over to Christ. You refuse to trust in Him. Why? It, it kinda, a lot of times it depends on who you're talking to, right? Well, I, I'm not going to do that because I got burnt in the past by a church. It's, these people, they did this, and I'm not going to trust. I'm not going to be a Christian. Or maybe it's because Jesus hasn't audibly said something to me. If he, if he says something to me, I mean, he wakes me up, and I'm like, whoa, then I'll, okay, I'll follow. Or he's not standing in front of you. Or maybe it's that you just say, well, a loving God would never allow someone to suffer. And just fill in the blank. I don't know. The excuse is there time and time again. The excuses keep on coming. Right? You know. You know you. You've got an excuse that you're going, well, you didn't list this one, but this is mine. Well, I would say ultimately, if you're honest, the reason that you're not following Christ, the reason that you're not submitting to the truth that's right before you and the Word of God, is pride. Is that you're too proud to confess before God that you're a sinner and you're in need of His salvation. You're too proud to say, I can't save myself, I can't do it on my own. Your pride leads you to demand that Jesus look like you think He should look like. Your pride leads you to demand this and that and the other and to refuse to believe Him. And what you need to know is while you may say, Jesus needs to do this, he needs to said that, he needs to look like this. What you need to know is that who Jesus is, that who he is, is much greater and glorious and awesome than who you could ever want him to be. So you can choose to say, you know, if Jesus looks like I want him to look like, then I'll follow him. You can choose that, but you're going to be sorely disappointed because he's much more glorious and awesome and majestic 
than you could ever fathom him to be. I can guarantee you that. I, I can just say today, standing before you, that, that the longer I follow the Lord, the more awe I have of the Lord. The, the longer I follow him, the more I step back and go, God, your ways are not my ways. And your knowledge is so far beyond mine and your wisdom is, is so unbelievable. And I am so thankful that you don't do, the way, do things the way that I would have done them. I would have never manufactured the gospel story. <laughs> I, I would have never said, you know what, there's nothing I can do. No, I, I would have said, hey, you know what, if I do this, this, and this, I'm good to go. That would have never made it. I would have fallen short. Thanks be to God that he's one who is so wise and so awesome and so glorious that he takes the wisdom of man and makes it seem as utter foolishness. And he, he takes something that would seem so crazy, so outlandish that God himself be born as a baby in an insignificant town to insignificant parents among insignificant shepherds would grow in wisdom and stature and live a sinless life and die in the most cruel deaths you can imagine and raise from the grave living and reigning for all eternity and that God would say, listen, there's nothing you can give. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But I have provided. I have provided the Messiah. And if you turn from your sinfulness and you trust him, then you will be saved. Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of our God. How inscrutable are his ways. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the good news that we can take our doubts and our questions to him. Thanks be to God for the good news that all who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead are saved. Part of the kingdom of God. Thanks be to God for the good news that he has made himself known to us through his word. That his truth stands before us. And that we can be saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we... We bow and, and God, I thank you for this account 
in John's life where he came to a moment where there was a serious question that he took into you. We thank you that, that we're reminded in this text that you move in mysterious ways and ways that we perhaps don't anticipate or expect or that we wouldn't map out or design or plan for. But God, you move in such a way that shows your glory and your, your wisdom and your goodness and your kindness. God, we rejoice in that today. And God, as we've thought about what you did on the cross in dying for our sins, we think about who you are as the Messiah. God, we stand now and we praise you, Lord Jesus. God, our hymn of praise that it would forever be, forever be, that Jesus Christ is King and He is Lord of all. And so God, we stand to worship You. We stand to praise You. We stand to magnify the name of Christ now. God, be glorified and exalted. We pray in the name of our Lord, our great God our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close this morning in worship and singing. If you have a question about becoming a Christian or following Christ, the same thing, not an or there, right? Becoming a Christian and following Christ. Or if you have a question about joining our church family or just like prayer, I'd invite you to you certainly join me down front. I'd be happy to speak with you or out in the foyer afterwards with one of the other pastors. But let's stand, let's sing, let's praise our God. Thank you.